Hello, writers of short stories and long stories, writers of linked stories and novels, writers of stories that form new forms. I'm Grant Faulkner, Executive Director of National Novel Writing Month, and I'm here with my co-host, Brooke Warner. And I'm especially excited to delve into the craft of linked story collections in this craft-minded series of Right-Minded. And our guest today is Morgan Talty, and Morgan's new book, Night of the Living Res, is a collection of linked stories. And it made me think of that perennial tension that is at the heart of a collection of linked stories. You know, the question is, why didn't the author write a novel instead? And I actually have a friend who had a collection of short stories and agents told her they'd only represent it if she could make them into linked stories. Uh, so she did that. But then after making them into linked stories, she heard that, that her book would be better as a novel, which she had actually no intention of writing at that point. That was just not how she envisioned it. So as a writer, you might be dealing with, with a collision of craft concerns and commercial concerns concerns. Yeah, I mean, there is absolutely a tension there. And uh, just so listeners know what a collection of linked stories is, uh, these collections include stories that are complete and that each story can stand alone. But when put together, they interrelate, they create a larger story. So they can read like a novel, but they're not necessarily a sustained story in the way that a novel is. Uh, and there aren't a lot of collections of linked stories, and yet they're trendy in their own way. And I'm thinking of several that have broken out in the recent past, uh, including Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad. Uh, Elizabeth Strout wrote Olive Kittredge, of course, uniquely well-loved, and Louise Erdrich's Love Medicine. So so they are popular, and we you know certainly see stories that really lend themselves to this form. Yeah. You know, one thing I think of when I think of linked story collections is how you can read them as a story collection and not really think of them as a linked whole. And that was my reading experience of Dennis Johnson's Jesus' Son, which is one of my favorite story collections. And it's a really good example of the form. Um, and Morgan's collection, and especially his story, Burn, you know, really evokes Dennis Johnson, um, in fact. And, and Morgan does say that he was an influence. Juno Diaz, who wrote Drown, which, which might be considered a collection of linked stories, um, even though it wasn't billed that way, he says that it's a neither nor form. And, and I thought that was an interesting way to put it. You know, they can give the reader both the, the glorious ephemerality of the short story, he says, and some aspects of the novel. He says it's, it's relational, longue durée. <laughs> no, I pronounce that right. <laughs> and it's what comes next propulsion. So there is, I think, in these link story collections, a, a type of plot moving forward, certainly. But I thought maybe instead of a neither nor, maybe it's a both and form. Hmm. And I think the form is really appealing to writers because they can work within this, you know, this framework of compression, you know, focusing on small moments. Um, and you can write a very focused story, you know, a standalone piece. Um, but then you get this dual benefit of still having it be kind of expansive and big. Well, I love your reframing there of the both and because, you know, I was thinking it's a perfect form for you since you straddle two very different writing spaces in that you write super short stories and then big novels and NaNoWriMo. And that's a sort of both and of its own. Uh, and it seems to me like link stories offer a different angle on writing plot because of the way that they present a more fractured or ambiguous plot line rather than a clear linear narrative trajectory. So I think it's worth noting the fact that with link stories, there's almost all always some sort of organizing principle. I mean, that can be thematic, it can be on whatever the linkage is that the collection is centered on. So for instance, uh, Winesburg, Ohio is an early collection 
by Sherwood Anderson, and that is linked by place. And we see that a fair amount. I mean, place is a, a nice thing to link stories. Uh, Olive Kittredge is linked by Olive and the townspeople around her. And then Jennifer Egan's A Visit from the Goon Squad focuses on two significant characters, Benny and Sasha, with music and the music industry as unifying themes. Uh, and in that book, as many others, it's not the characters who lead all the stories. In a way, I think that's maybe what's compelling to writers who don't want to feel bound by the confines of the character-driven novel. What do you think? Yeah, you perfectly captured my interest in the form. You know, I love going small in my writing, but it's also nice to piece together all of the patches and essentially sew them together into a quilt. And in fact, a quilt is a is a good metaphor for a collection of linked stories because they are a set of different types of fabric brought together into one work of art rather than, you know, like a single painting per se that has a focused narrative. And it's interesting what you said about a visit from the Goon Squad, uh, because when I first read that, I, I don't know if I knew what it was. I I think I thought it was a novel. And then by the time I finished it, I was like, no, this isn't a novel. This is a, a series of, of short stories. And I, I don't even know if Jennifer Egan actually ever answered that question. I'm not sure if she knew herself. It's kind of both and, I guess. <laughs> yeah, neither nor. Well, it's interesting because I'm sure that's true. Sometimes, as Morgan is going to share in the interview today, you know, the, the story or the form is what's driving and you kind of follow it. And it makes me think back to our interview with Jean Chen Ho, who wrote Fiona and Jane, because she talked about writing her initial stories separately and not with the idea of making them into something bigger like a novel. But then they built on each other and they became something like a novel and maybe that's what Jennifer Egan did too. And I know there are lots of writers who resist this characterization. Um, maybe that's not as important as the experience, you know, and since writing is the creative form that it is as a writer, you never really know what's going to happen when you set out. You might think you have a handle on the story or what your book is going to be, but the book is always going to inform you one way or the other. And sometimes otherwise, I always think about how the book is shaping itself, even as you give shape to it. And with stories, you know, you're necessarily writing to the moment rather than the narrative arc. And, you know, I certainly think that's appealing to a lot of authors. I like this idea that the book has a mind of its own. It's going to be stubborn. It's mm -hmm. going to, you know, form its own uh, uh, trailblazing path. Um, and, and, you know, another way to think about it is it's it's almost like the writer is writing an accidental novel in a way. And I'm using the <laughs> word accidental as a good thing. Yes. Happy accidents. Uh, I've heard about a lot of those over the years from writers and also just, you know, the way that process can show up to surprise us. Mm -hmm. And so uh, let's hear from Morgan Talty on all of these topics. And we'll be right back after this short break. Hey, everyone. I just want to remind you that a big writing event is coming up in November. It's called National Novel Writing Month. And uh, here are some things to think about uh, if you've done it or even if you haven't done it. One, part of its premise is not to wait until someday to write your novel because someday tends not to happen. So make your novel a priority and write it today, you know, during National Novel Writing Month. And the way that that happens is, is that National Novel Writing Month, also known as NaNoWriMo, it's a 30-day challenge to write 50,000 words of your story. So let's do some math. 
That's about 1,700 words a day. That's very doable. Let me tell you, I've seen it happen thousands and thousands of times. And I always describe NaNoWriMo as one part writing boot camp and one part rollicking party. And the boot camp part is, of course, you know, showing up every day and, and honing your discipline to, to write and to keep writing and tracking your progress and being accountable. And then the party part is that we have this amazing community surrounding uh, NaNoWriMo. It takes place online, takes place in person. We've got a thousand volunteers around the world organizing writing gatherings in your community, probably. So, yeah, write with others, have fun writing. Also, write the novel of your dreams. You know, we say a goal and a deadline is a creative midwife. So sign up for that midwife. It's all free on NaNoWriMo.org. I'll see you in November in NaNoLand. Welcome back, everybody. I'm very excited to introduce our guest today, Morgan Talty. Morgan is a citizen of the Penobscot Indian Nation, where he grew up. He received his BA in Native American Studies from Dartmouth College and his MFA in Fiction from Stone Coast Low Residency Program. His story collection, which just came out, Night of the Living Res, uh, came out from Tin House Books, and his work has appeared in Granta, The Georgia Review, Shenandoah, Triquarterly, Narrative Magazine, Lit Hub, and elsewhere, all great journals. Uh, Morgan is also on the faculty of the Stone Coast MFA program in creative writing, and he is also a prose editor at the Massachusetts Review. Welcome, Morgan. Thank you, Grant, for having me. Absolutely. Morgan, we're focusing on uh, craft elements in a series we're currently doing. And one element of craft that interests me is the shape a story takes. And, and you decided to present Night of the Living Res as a collection of linked stories as opposed to a novel. And I wondered why you made that decision and how that changed the shape or the feel of the narrative. And, and then what's the difference between a collection of linked stories and a novel in your mind? All great questions. Um, I think, I feel like the decision about making it a story collection versus a, a novel. Um, I mean, I obviously set out first to, to write a story collection. Like that's what I wanted to do. Um, but I feel like there's this, this sort of, in, in any work we do, it, it'll tell us, I think what it wants to be. You know, we can end up writing a short story and it's like, Oh, this is a novel, you know, or we can write a novel and we're like, this is like a piece of flash fiction. Um, you're 80,000 words deep, you know? And, you know, with this, I set out to write a story collection and I just, you know, it was a story collection in my mind. So there was no doubt about it. And, you know, I had agents ask me to turn it into a novel so they could, they could sell it. And every time I tried to turn it into a novel, I only tried a couple of times, but every time I did that, the stories, the whole, the whole book felt to break. It was like, you were applying too much pressure. Um, to like a two by four right in the middle and it just, it wouldn't work. It wouldn't hold the weight, which I think gets me to that second question. You know, what's sort of the difference between a, a novel and a short story? You know, I think I, I can't remember the writer who said this, but I've always sort of stolen it from them. But I think a novel is really in depth, you know, it can, you know, it's 200 pages plus and, um, very expansive and you know specific, and those are qualities you can find in short fiction as well. But I think the big thing is with short fiction, you know, short fiction draws its power from what's left out, um, from what's not on the page. Whereas novels, you know, they have to be sort of like all encompassing; they have to have every detail because that's what the reader sort of expects in a way. 
I loved how you described that, you know, that the, the almost like a tension, you know, that you it was going to break if you made it a novel. And of course, that the, the whole push to make it a novel is a commercial concern and not a craft concern. And so I'm just wondering if you could say more about that vision. I believe what you just said 100% that the book knows what it wants to be. Uh, you know, so did you feel yourself resisting making the book a novel or was the book itself resisting making itself a novel? And, and how did that make the collection stronger? It was both. I mean, I knew the collection did not want to be a novel. I mean, because I think we've all read books that have felt forced, you know, I think editorially. And um, and that's not a criticism of, of anything. It's just, I think, more of a, well, I guess it's a criticism on mainstream <laughs> big publishing. But the collection didn't want it to be a novel. Like, it, it just didn't work. And my dissatisfaction with those stories not working you know, I was like, whatever. I was like, you're not getting a novel. Like if the book doesn't, if nobody ever represents this book, so be it. It will never be a novel. It's going to be what it is now. And, you know, I just sort of stuck to to what I believed in. And, you know, I suppose let the story, you know, guide me to where the whole collection ultimately came, you know, where it arrived at with, with the 12 stories in it. Well, per the 12 stories, Morgan, I think it's interesting that there are two sets of stories in conversation with each other. And as I understand it, first, there were what I'll call the David stories and then the D stories. And so I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the process of writing each and why you needed each of those set of stories for the collection. Yeah, so I didn't know I needed both until <laughs> I realized it. Um, I set out to write a story collection um, and I had, I think, three short stories already written from David's point of view. The first one, the first story I actually ever wrote was Night of the Living Res, the title story. And then there was Smoke's Last, and then this other story called It's All There, which is sort of like a sort of like the very early, early days of the Blessing Tobacco. Um, all very, but very, very different. Um, and so it was like, I'm going to write a story uh, from David's point of view all the way from a child until he's a young adult and neither living res. And I did that. And I wrote like 15 stories told from David's perspective and, you know, over the course of a year and a half and looking at the collection, I was like, this is so bad. <laughs> like, this is just terrible. Like if I'm realistic, you know, three or four of the stories were good, but the rest are bad. And it was just like boring to read. You're just seeing the same characters over and over again. Um, different situations. There's nothing, there's no sort of like overarching arc to it or an arc that was buried underground. And, and so I was like, well, whatever, I guess this failed. I'll go do something else. And I wrote, I went and wrote the story burn and it was in burn that I kept wanting to call the main character, David, because I'd been writing his perspective for like a year and a half. And I just put the letter D in as a placeholder until I could figure out his name and I kept saying, D, 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 D what? And I was like, wait, is this, is his name D? Like, does he go by D? So I put two E's after it. And then I was like, is this David all grown up? And then all of a sudden I was like, now the question was what happened? And so I started writing these D and fellas stories about just their, their ridiculousness, their, their trials and errors and all that stuff. And I realized it belonged to this collection. And I was like, I wonder if I could do like this zigzag pattern, right? Like a David story, a D story, a David story, a D story. And I did that. And, you know, I think because there's this gap in time, there's that question of, you know, like what happened? So that sort of became 
I guess it's sort of like novel-esque aspect. Um, like it had this, this question that held them all together beyond just the characters and their individual situations that I think sort of propels it forward. You know, I would make one decision and it was just, I never knew what the next thing was going to be. <laughs> it was always a surprise. Well, in reading up about you, I've read that the Penobscot Reservation is the place that is most home to you. And I was wondering if you could tell our listeners about depicting home on the page and how that inspired you and what challenges that held. And I'm curious how that sense of home and place perhaps guided the story, uh, the storytelling itself. Yeah, I feel like there's there's two ways to represent home. There's the, you know, the physical world that you can render on the page, but then there's also the the mood or the the feeling associated with the particular place. Um, and, you know, I think it may, it might depend. I feel like both of those apply to fiction and nonfiction. And, but in fiction, you know, there's always this question, what do I do with this place that I, that's a real world place that I want to, you know, create fictional environments or, you know, fictional situations. And you have to come to, you have to know what you want. You you know, you have to be like, okay, I'm going to render this place, you know, accurately, or I'm going to render this place 70% accurately and then like make up other places. You know, that's, you know, one of the things I did in my book is, you know, the majority of the places that are mentioned are real places. Um, some of it I made up though, I think just for future projects, um, which is another thing too. If you're, you know, a very, if you're a place-based writer and someone who's very connected to, you know, your homeland, wherever that is, you know, think about making sure you're, you're writing about your place in a way that allows you to keep writing about it, right? You know, don't, I would never say that the reservation was this three by two mile island um, in my work. You know, I want, I'd rather it be, you know, as big as it can be so I can accommodate so many people and stories. But that's, that's my biggest advice is like knowing what you want knowing how you want to depict the place, whether physically, you know, with, with details, but also with feeling. That's interesting. Cause I think one part of that feeling and that feeling of home is the stories that are part of that feeling. And I think it's interesting how you've incorporated your own retellings of traditional stories, you know, within these original stories. So I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about your relationship to, to the older stories that you include and how you came to include them. Do you mean the, uh, like, traditional Penobscot stories? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, so I looked for, you know, I think one of the big things with Native writers or any writer who's coming from marginalized space, there's this sort of, you know, if a readership at large is, an, is like, is, is a non-Native readership, you know, they're usually expecting something, you know, some sense of performance. And for me, I was like, I'm not going to just put culture in the front, like, I'm going to put the people in the front and then the cultural aspects that they experience and are part of will come when the opportunity arises. And, you know, when I think about the traditional stories I have in the short stories themselves, you know, they, they were never me really trying to like put those stories in, but rather I was like, Oh, this could be a great time to bring up, you know, the stone people, for example, and get me some medicine or, you know, Oh, this could be a great, you know, in, in Night of the Living Res, the title story, this this would be a great place to bring in, you know, the Pugwajis or Meekum West, you know, the little people. And so I really, I really looked for opportunities where the work itself would allow me to do it, where, where the stories themselves didn't feel forced, didn't feel performative, but rather 
were more human-like um, in that you would that, that you would kind of expect this to be how it is for these people. Well, one of the things we talk about on the show a lot is the challenges of believing in yourself as a writer. And I found it interesting that you were told by professors that you were a good writer, but before you got your MFA at Stonecrest, you didn't believe them. Why didn't you believe them? And and then when did you start to believe that you were a good writer? Um, I don't know why I didn't believe them. I mean, I didn't, I did really, really bad in high school. And I just think like, I just had a lot of self-doubt. I just had a lot of self-doubt about my ability to do anything academic. But even then when I started and was kind of like making up for lost time, so to speak, just because I didn't have the best home environment for, you know, the best education. But I don't know. I just could not believe it. I don't think I could ever, I, I couldn't cross this boundary that, you know, I had physically crossed, um, you know, from, being in a space where education wasn't really the, you know, the big thing, but when my body was there, you know, in school and like the space and stuff like that, and I fell in love with it, you know, I was able to do it, but my like mentality, I just could not adapt. And for so long, I just like, I don't know. I just refused to, I refused to believe it. Maybe I was afraid that if I accepted it, if I accepted it, I would have lost something um, of my old self, which, seems silly, but and that's not really true. But yeah, I don't know. It was just very, it was a very difficult thing for me to, to deal with. Well, Morgan, you've, you've said that the best writing advice you've received was to, to make something inexplicable happen and then work to reconcile it, to make sense of it. And I really like that advice because I've seen a lot of writers who have a hard time, you know, essentially having conflict happen to their character or having something bad happen to their character. And I oftentimes, I joke that a lot of my narratives uh, really are just about a guy walking around the world. So I think that that's a nice way to view putting pressure on the narrative by making something inexplicable happen. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about what that means. And then I'm curious if that means something different in a novel than it does in a collection of linked stories. So since I know you're working now on a novel. Yeah, I think for me, I think it's the... I think it's the same for, for regardless of, you know, short fiction or novel. It just depends if you get lucky enough to have a big enough engine to sustain the novel. But for me, you know, making something inexplicable happen is like really trying to find something strange or weird or, you know, some, something quirky to, to happen to get a story going. You know, Earth Speak, for example features Stellis and D and they, you know, get inspired by Antiques Roadshow and because they saw this root club, um, this indigenous root club sell for an outrageous amount of money. And they're like, oh, let's break into the <laughs> break into the uh tribal museum and steal steal those and go sell them. And, you know, it's it's kind of like thinking about like those types of situations. It's like, okay, how can I make something absurd happen or something crazy happen? And then make it work, make it believable, make it feel like this is something that somebody could do. And I think that's like the reconciliation part. How can I write a piece of fiction where somebody turns into, you know, a 12 foot monster and then make that actually feel like it actually happened? You know, I think Karen Russell is a great example of a writer who can, who, who is able to, to really do that, you know, make something inexplicable happen and then sort of like works to make it feel like it actually occurred. 
Well, cool, Morgan. I look forward to reading about more inexplicable things happening in your stories. So thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much, Morgan. Good luck and continued success. Thank you for having me. We'll be right back after this short break with today's book trend. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This week's book trend is all about Goodreads giveaways. And Brooke, I, I don't know how this happened, but I've gone years, uh, three years of publishing books. And I just did my first Goodreads giveaway and it was super fun. And I think it was effective. So I want to tell you all about it. But first, I want to know, did you do a Goodreads giveaway for any of your books? You know, I did not, but my authors do it on the regular, so I'm very familiar with them. And so I'm eager to hear about yours, and maybe I'll quickly fill in listeners on what Goodreads giveaways are. Uh, basically, they're a way for authors and publishers to promote their books, and so you can choose between two packages, the standard at $119 and the premium at $599, and then Goodreads basically promotes your giveaway, um, and then that drives entries, and then they randomly select winners once the giveaway ends. So giveaways for Kindle eBooks are fulfilled by Goodreads while the author uh, or the publisher who created the giveaway then is responsible for mailing the print books to the winners, which is the hardest part. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so Grant, <laughs> tell us about your experience and what about it was fun. Yeah. One thing was not being responsible to mail the print books. That's That was the crucial, one crucial ingredient. But um, I liked a couple things about my giveaway. Um, one, since my book was actually released a year ago, during a COVID spike and some supply chain issues, I didn't have a launch party. Uh, so my publisher agreed to do a giveaway of 25 copies as a one-year anniversary. And this, what I liked about it is this gave me a reason to post about it on social media and in my newsletter. And my publisher did as well. So it felt a little bit like a launch party. And then secondly, and maybe most importantly, everyone who enters your giveaway automatically adds the book to their want to read list on Goodreads, which then promotes your book via updates and, and friends updates, feeds and things like that. And also the author's followers and anyone who has already added the book to their want to read list gets a notification, you know, letting them know there's a giveaway starting. And this helps, you know, generate more entries, um, creating more stories in the Goodreads updates field, that whole kind of social media viral infrastructure, you know, kind of starts going in motion. And so, yeah, it, it increases the chance that your book will actually be discovered by others. And I know I sound like a salesman for good giveaways <laughs> right now. I'm not actually, I should, yeah, I should be, I should look into that. But uh, anyway, I ended up getting something just to, just, just to give the results. I got something like 1400 entries. Um, and so according to my math, you know, that's not a bad marketing spend for $119. I really did it just to learn and experience it. So, but I'm counting that as a success. 
I, I think it's good when the book trend interacts with your personal experience and enthusiasm, uh, because it, it just helps us to understand, you know, what is actually worth it. Because yeah, book giveaways are not necessarily about increasing sales, right? They're about increasing awareness of your book and helping you get in front of the right audience. And uh, so according to many giveaway winners, um, you know, it does help them to talk about the book and there are ripple effects to doing these kinds of things. It's uh, per your earlier point, you know, I would be hesitant or I wouldn't do it if I had to put more labor into it because I just know how bad I am at shipping um, things I'm, or mailing <laughs> a letter even. So shipping 25 books is beyond me. So if you're going to do it and handle the shipping yourself, just be just keep in mind uh, how hard fulfillment can be. Yeah, it's it's just a uh, very tedious. I absolutely deplore the post office. Yeah. So uh, yeah, and listeners, uh, you know, you can also have other people do these things for you. Uh, you have to, of course, weigh the many many investments available at, because there's so much money that you can be spending on all kinds of things, and it can seriously never end. So. You know, we, on the other hand, are free. We continue to be free and here for you each week, endlessly, for now anyway. So thank you so much for listening. We appreciate it. We hope you enjoy the craft series and more to come next week. Thanks, everyone. <laughs>